At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I'm just going to jump right into today's episode with a couple stats. The first one is this, 60,000 employees. 60,000 employees. That's how many employees our friends at Facebook have as part of their team. 60,000 employees. Our guest today was one of the first 250 employees to be brought onto that team. Our guest today and his team that he led managed more than 35% of Facebook's revenue. And yet today, our guest is going to share how after retiring from Facebook at the ripe age of 42, Paul Ollinger found himself bored and lonely and completely unfulfilled, wondering why the wealth windfall that he had so long pursued did not deliver the contentment he expected. Paul began to explore the connection between money and happiness. Today, my friend Paul Ollinger is going to share how his childhood shaped his traditional conservative economic outlook, how he weighted his success and how much money he made, and then ultimately how he learned that money is only one attribute to a multivariable equation for happiness in life. My friends, you're going to love this conversation. Put away your calculators for a moment. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal Buckle up, get ready for a ride with a wonderful guy, a wonderful conversation with a newfound appreciation for the complexities of happiness beyond wealth. So without further ado, let me bring him on. His name is Paul Ollinger. Paul, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me. Well, man, I feel like I'm on with a friend already. I say that frequently as we kick off these shows, but uh, we've already chatted, you and I, for about 10 minutes. For those who don't know the name Paul Ollinger yet, if they were to meet you at Ted Drew's, something you and I talked about before we hit record, at a yeah. little ice cream shop here in St. Louis, and they said, That's Paul, right. what do you do? What do you do? How do you respond to that? I eat ice cream too fast is probably what I'm doing in that in that situation and, and suffering from a headache. Um but if if you asked me what I did, I'd I'd probably say something like I'm a comedian and a podcaster, and and then the, and they'd look at me and go, "You're a comedian. You're 50, 50 something years old. How come I've never heard of you? And uh, <laughs> what does your ex wife think of that? Um, something like that. And and then I'd tell them my background of having a corporate background and then jumping into the comedy world as a second career. It's a great intro. So we're we're, we're going to come back to comedy and to your wife, and to uh, that X job that you had at a company people may have heard of. But I'm going to go back in time a little bit farther. You grew up in Georgia. I did. You and I share several similarities. One of them is that we had a big family. I'm one of six. Oh, I, I am too. Yeah. Uh, what number are you? I'm four. And boy, what's the breakdown, boys and girls? Oldest is a boy, then two girls, then John, then two girls. What about oh, you? Okay. I'm I'm the fifth child, the the youngest of three boys, and I have a little sister. Awesome. So, you know, things are a little chaotic. You got to make your own fun at home. Talk, talk about growing up. I know your dad worked at Georgia power. You did do your homework. Yes. Um, so I'm one of uh, six kids in a big Catholic family and two parents that stayed together for 55 years until my mom died. We always had everything we needed, but there was always just like, you know, a little bit of financial stress and my dad was a depression era dad, uh, probably not unlike yours and luxuries. Um, 
for example, like Novocaine at the dentist was they, th those things weren't, you know, just thrown around willy nilly around our house, but we had a big loving family that still, it was chaotic as you say, but we're still tight to this day. And, you know, it's funny as growing up with six kids, there's, there's a lot to complain about, a lot to be grateful for too. But I tell you, being one of six kids as an adult, when you're taking care of aging parents is one of the best gifts I've been given in life. Yeah. So I'm glad that not only did you have the, the family growing up, but it remains together, even though now you are growing up. You talked about money was tight. Did, did that impact how you viewed money and how you viewed your professional journey going forward? It did. You know, I mean, I remember my parents and the number one podcast I've had is the interview that I did with my dad. Everybody, and I, I recorded it when he was 91 and he passed away a few years later. And the fact that I got that conversation on tape is just... I'm so grateful that, that that happened. But what's funny, but when I talked to him, I said, Dad, you know, I remember taking him to the hospital one time because, you know, in late in life, that's what you do with your parents is you take them to the doctor and, and that's your opportunity to visit with them. And I remember driving him back to where he lived and I was saying, Dad, do you think that if you had had like maybe 20% more money, you wouldn't have stressed so much about money growing up? And he was like, stress? I don't remember stress. And I almost drove off the road. I was so surprised. And I told my brother that story. And he just started laughing because there was this subtext of financial stress. Like there just wasn't enough. And I think that's just part of the culture that my parents grew up with having, you know, been born in the 1927 and 1938 respectively. That's just how they were raised. And whether or not it was actually true, like we were on the brink of going broke, there was always this, we can't afford it kind of mentality. And I think that did kind of hard code me as as having this financial stress as having some people call it a scarcity mindset, but I always wanted to make money as a kid. I thought I wanted to be part of a rich family because I figured if you had a lot of money, then you didn't worry about money. And since that's basically the only thing we had to worry about growing up or that I did growing up, then that would solve all your problems. And that set me on the path to say, I'm going to, I'm going to get good grades because I'm going to go to a good college. And if I go to a good college, I'll get a good job and then I'll make a lot of money and then I won't have to worry. Well, of course, as adults looking back, that's just, you know, absurd to think that money is going to solve all your problems or that really not having enough money is the biggest problem any family could have given all the great gifts. I had two stable parents who were committed to raising their kid and educating us. And as I look back now that I'm and we'll talk about, you know, how I got here, but I've, I've had a very, I had a very good career. I'm very blessed financially and I'm raising my kids in an atmosphere of affluence. And I kind of feel like I had a better mm. opportunity because I got the opportunity to prove myself. You know, my kids will have different challenges growing up and maybe they won't be as motivated. Uh, maybe they will, you never know. And I, and I know great adults who grew up affluent and i know some adults who didn't grow up affluent that aren't so that aren't so great and vice versa money's only one attribute to a multi-variable equation for happiness in life so you're seeking success you're trying to earn the grades you're making it into the right schools i'm curious though because we haven't talked about it yet but when did you do your first stand-up I went to college, I graduated, got, uh, went, went into educational fundraising, ra raised money for my college, Rhodes College, graduated, worked at Rhodes for three years raising money. I was like, this is good, but I feel like I want to be a little bit more on the corporate path. So I went to business school because I wanted to make more money. And my first semester at business school, they asked me to host a talent show. And in that talent show, um, I told jokes in front of a crowd for the first time. Basically, I just made fun of my classmates for 10 minutes, which coming from a, a an eight person family dinner table, that's just second nature to guys like us, right? <laughs> so Paul, I, I have a dear friend who is one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. I had coffee with him by chance this morning. I love him. He tried stand up one time at an open mic night and my friends and I who were in the bar with him that night still talk about it because it was the most painful experience <laughs> any one of us have ever witnessed. The best thing that could have happened to him. Best well, thing that could have happened that to him. wasn't his pathway, man. Like for him, it, it was not the best thing that had ever happened to him. <laughs> it's the point is it is, it's hard to do anything well ever, but, but in particular the first time. So how did you prepare to stand in front of a group of peers and classmates with a mic in your hand, the light now is on, and here you go? Well, I didn't think about it as 
this is me trying stand up. I just thought about it as here's an opportunity for me to make fun of my friends for 10 minutes. And, you know, Bill Burr, the, the very well-known comedian today, who's been at it for 30 years, by the way, he says that you get into comedy because you're the guy who's funny at the bar, but then it takes you 10 years how to learn to be that person on stage, how to just go up there and be yourself as opposed to go up there and trying to tell jokes and trying to be funny mm. when you're funny because you're funny naturally. You don't think about it when you're at the bar, just, just making fun of your pals or talking about sports or your girlfriend or whatever it is. And so that's the thing that, and, and when you see a comedian who's up there and it looks so effortless and so natural, that's them being them. And that's the greatest thing about comedy is, is the opportunity to be yourself is I think the thing that well certainly I, but I think most of us are looking for that pathway in our lives. Where can I be in a work environment, in a school environment, in a family environment where I can be who I am and trust that I'll be accepted for playing that role. And it's a hard thing to do, especially in the corporate world when you're expected to play a certain role, stay on message, you know, be this person in that environment. And sometimes it's really painful for people. There's that tension. It certainly was for me, which is one of the reasons I left corporate life. There was this tension between the role I thought I was supposed to play and who I felt like I wanted to be. So you got a Dartmouth. You you weren't going to name drop it. I'll do it for you. Yeah, I got I I snuck my way into Dartmouth. That's what that's what's good about applying from Memphis is you're you're not one of the ten thousand Wall Street guys who's applying. But I got in, and it's funny, you know, I I borrowed what would be a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's dollars to go to school there, and then what happens is the the the, the first big experience I have there is that I learned that I want to be a comedian. It's uh it's not the outcome you're looking for when you borrow that kind of cash. <laughs> So that you learn that's what you want to do, but you don't do that right away. What, what's your first real job after the MBA? Because of those loans, um, which back in the day, here's a crazy notion, John. When you borrowed money back then, you were expected to pay it back. So I, having grown up with my dad, especially uh, the man who only borrowed to buy a house and paid it off as quickly as he possibly could. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this. I got, I got debts. I got to take them seriously. One of the reasons I wanted to make money was because I wanted to be my own man. I wanted to be solvent. I wanted to be a sustainable, autonomous economic entity. And so I, I was like, okay, well, I can't do comedy, but I'm really interested in the media world. And back then that meant magazines, movies, and television. And so I tried to get a job with one of those things because I was really, what I really wanted to do was to do comedy or be an actor. But I was thinking, well, this is a step close, what what author Stephen Pressfield would call a shadow career. It's like I'm next to it, but it's not quite the thing I want to do. Right. Well, I had no experience in those industries. They didn't want to talk to me. And eventually I just said, well, you know what? Nobody has any experience in the digital media industry, in the internet industry in 1997. I'll just go figure out how to get my myself into that industry. And there was a job announcement. Now, remember, this is, what is it, uh, 26 years ago, 27 years ago. They used to get job announcements. Companies would pay to get listings in job announcements in career centers, like a binder, a literal, literal binder in the career center at Dartmouth. And um, there was a job announcement for a sales leader for an advertising-supported CD-ROM magazine that was all about music and movies. And I was like, I don't even know what a, what a CD-ROM magazine is, but this sounds like it was one of those, it's so crazy, it just might work moments. And I had been through enough interviews at that point. It was like, when I see an opportunity that looks like it's going to work, I, I was like, I really went after it. And as it turned out, it was called the Launch CD-ROM. And it was uh, founded by two guys, Dave Goldberg and Bob Roback. Um, Dave went on to become the CEO of SurveyMonkey. And he, he is the late husband of Sheryl Sandberg. And he was just one of the greatest guys. And going to work at launch connected me with some of the closest friends that I, that I still have to this day. In fact, we eventually got bought by Yahoo for no money at right when the dot-com bubble was, was falling apart. And then I went to work for Yahoo. So just getting connected to that group of people it was a piece of good fortune and one of the many I'd have had in my career. And so here you are set up for life working on Yahoo. Except well, there's I, still this I was tug, still broke. Dude, I was still tug to try comedy. 
What what was it about comedy that you you were in love with already? Well, I was still broke while I was working. I was still paying off my student loans at Yahoo, but fortunately the stock kept growing. And so I'd get my stock uh, allocation that month and pay off my student loans with the idea that as soon as I paid off my loans and put some money in the bank, I was going to go try stand-up comedy. And I'm working at Yahoo one day, the phone rings. I was covering the consumer products team in New York and covering the Pepsi business and the phone rings. And it's a woman from LA who said, we're working with the Pepsi people with one of their brands to try and figure out how to use comedy uh, as a program on on Yahoo. Would you And so I said, that sounds great. I'll write it up for you. And I sent it back to her. And she's like, you really know comedy. And I said, well, I'm an open micer. And I started doing open mics in, in San Francisco and LA at coffee shops and bars and stuff. And, and she goes, well, you need to meet Robert. And I was like, who's Robert? She goes, it's Robert Hartman. He's a guy that runs the improv. And I was like, Robert, in my head, I'm like, this guy doesn't want to talk to me. So I was like, I'll, I'll take his number and I'll call him in a few months when I'm ready to quit. Hang up with her. An hour later, my phone rings. He goes, hey, it's Robert Hartman. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so he goes, I hear we need to meet. And so he, he comes to New York. We have lunch. He goes, well, why don't you move back to LA and I'll put you up on stage and you can help me with some of my digital strategies. And this is in 2005. 18 years ago. And so I go from being an open micer to opening for Norm MacDonald and Roseanne Barr and a lot of comedians, big time comedians. I was not ready for that gig and I was terrible. I'd only done like 40 sets of comedy at that point. But in two years, I got hundreds and hundreds of sets in because I was opening for these people five nights a week, you know, for two years. And then- Before you even go on, yeah, when, you yeah, say, yeah, sure. when you say I was terrible, are you uh, viewing that based upon how you are today? Or no, John, seriously, it was horrible. It was cringeworthy. Well, it was cringeworthy because I got a I got an opportunity that I wasn't ready for. And so as I was going to say about your buddy, your buddy bombs. And in that moment, if he bombs and he thinks this is something I never, ever want to do again, he just saved himself years and years of pain and lost income and unrequited uh, love of comedy that would that just doesn't pay you back. But if you have that experience and you and you bomb, but you go, that was the greatest thing in the world, then you're then you're a sicko, and you've got and you've got the disease, and then you're going to put in the ten years that it takes to become yourself on stage. Ralphie May, the late Ralphie May, told me one of those nights as I was developing in in Irvine and Brea, California at the improvs, he said, don't worry about it. You'll start to get the hang of it in about eight years. And I was like, eight years, eight years. Are you kidding me? And I, I was like, you know how much I was making at Yahoo? Like what my opportunity cost is. But if you're thinking like that, you're never going to, you're, if you have a plan B in comedy, then you're not committed enough. Right. And so, so yes, it's a 10 year journey, five years to get functionally decent and 10 years to become pretty good. And so when, like when last comic standing came out, they said, these people are new comedians that have just started. They've been doing it for 10 years, all of them. And so it's all about reps. It's your 10,000 hours. It's all that. So if you've only done it 40 times, it's not that you don't have the potential. It's that you haven't worked out who you are on stage. You haven't worked out your material, your point of view, uh, all that stuff. And the difference when you, if I'm doing that next to some other open micer at some coffee shop in, in New York or San Francisco, no big deal. But when you're in front of 300 people and you're opening for Tommy Davidson or Colin Quinn or any number of uh, Kevin Neal and the people that I was opening for, all of a sudden the contrast becomes pretty stark. Like, wow, this guy, this show really got better as it went on, as the other guys came on stage. So I, I was very, very fortunate that I got the opportunity to do that. And it was even more fortunate that the improv folks stuck by me when I was developing. And in fact, I've spoken to some of these people as of this week. Mm. So these relationships have been, even though I, you know, I went off and I had a, a different career that we'll talk about in a second and, and kind of took a long hiatus out of comedy and then moved back to Atlanta where I've really been developing outside of New York or LA, which I, sh the, the idea would be that you develop in a market like Atlanta or Denver or Chicago, and then you move to LA or now Austin, where the big folks are going to see you. Well, let's talk about that career that you went into next. Yeah. You probably so to went partially kicking and screaming because I think you had some external influences that guided you into a new career. 
talk, just talk about that pivot from comedy into your next big job. I moved to LA to do comedy and my girlfriend at the time came with me. And two years into that segment of comedy, we got engaged. And going back to those kind of traditional conservative economic outlook that I have, I was like, I'm not exactly burning it up in comedy and I want to have a family and I want to be a responsible human being. And even though I had saved some money, a decent amount of money at that time, I didn't have like lifetime money that I could just, you know, reliably raise a family on. And so I was like, I kind of feel like I should get another job. And right about that time, a friend of mine I had worked with at Yahoo called and said, hey, I need a salesperson in LA for this company that I'm working for. Uh, and so would you, would you take a swing at this little company called Facebook? And so that's how I stumbled into my job is about the 250th employee at Facebook. And my wife, this is the joke I tell my wife was like, well, do you think this company's ever going to be anything? And I was like, honey, someday this company could be as big as MySpace." So, so that was the vision I had, John, that, that you know, I, I, I thought, Hey, this is going to go pretty, pretty well. I'm going to make a little bit of money. We'll save a little bit of money. And of course it turned into this just absurd home run that I never, never really dreamt of. So there's so many directions to go next, but what that early on the iteration of Facebook, what was the culture like? Chaotic. Um, it was growing so incredibly fast. When I started the, the, the website called the platform had 25 million visitors a month globally today. It has 3 billion plus. And in the time I was there, it probably grew to over a, it grew to over a billion, maybe a billion and a half. So I was there for four and a half years. And so just the the infrastructure that the company needed technologically to support that growth and the amount of money it was raising and the attention it was getting, I became eventually the head of West Coast sales. And it was really easy to get meetings with advertisers and CMOs because they were all reading about it. And they were like, what is the social network? Like, you know, MySpace had been a social network. Friendster had been a social network. But Facebook was the first real name culture. Remember that, that before Facebook, you didn't use John O'Leary as your handle. You were Cardinals fan 76 or whatever your handle was. So it was an anonymous platform and people represented themselves as a persona more than as a person. So it was really easy to get meetings, but we didn't have real advertising products that they could buy. And so we were in this, it was in this really awkward development phase between on the one hand, we're very successful as a reaching consumers. On another hand, we haven't figured out how to create value in between the advertiser who's paying for it and that consumer. Today, Facebook has arguably next to Google and the printing press, the most important communication tools in the history of the planet mm -hmm. and the most effective advertising tools in history. But back then it was crazy and we had terrible tools and the hiring was, you're trying to, you're bringing on, I don't know, it was like a hundred people a week or something back then. It was nuts. It was really nuts. The channel you're leading is driving 35% of the revenue for the organization. At the time, yes. At the time. It's a massive deal. It's extremely important. You know the direction this business is going. You know where that could take your life, certainly your finances, but you pull the parachute. Tell me why in relatively well, short order, you decided to leave Facebook behind. Well, I'll take a step back. I think that when Mark Zuckerberg back then was talking about, he's like, we're not trying to beat Yahoo or MySpace. We're trying to connect humankind. And I have to be honest to say, like, I was kind of like, what? Come on, that's absurd. We're just trying to beat these guys and whatever. But Mark Zuckerberg, remember when he was 21 or 22 years old, he would have made $400 million if he had sold to Yahoo at the time. $400 million. At, the, at that age, I would have been like, let's call it $200 million and get it done today, right? So this guy was on it. He's always been on a different path. And I don't think I fully bought into that, if, to be quite honest. But every quarter, every year, you know, it'd be clear that he was turning down, you know, they turned down an acquisition offer from Microsoft for like billions and billions. And so it became clear over time that he was on a different path. I found it very difficult to be in that position as an advertising leader to where I couldn't provide the kind of tools that my clients were looking for, that I couldn't give them the service or the access to senior people that they were looking for and had grown to expect 
working with all the other platforms. That's a weakness that I think I had. I think I wanted the world to be perfect. I think I wanted Facebook to be perfect. And I think if I would have started meditating earlier in life, maybe I could have stuck around for another year or two because I would have been less perturbed by some of the things that were outside of my control. And would have really stepped back to say, you know what, nobody's yelling at you for not hitting your goals. Nobody's yelling at you for, for not having these products. What you're trying to do is build this organization to bring in the right people to create a very strong culture for the future, because that's where this company was oriented. It really wasn't oriented in a quarter to quarter mindset that I had been trained over time to as a, as a way of thinking about sales and in, in, in the media business. And that was on me. So I left, I eventually, they asked me to move up to Palo Alto from Los Angeles. And at this point in my life, since business school, I had lived in New York, I'd gone New York, LA, San Francisco, New York, and back to LA. And they asked me to move to Palo Alto, which would have completed that triangle for the second time. And I just said to my wife, who was pregnant with our second child at this point, I was like, if we go anywhere, I want to move home. Hmm. I want to be in a place where we're going to stay. And so we decided to um, step away from my management position. I moved back to El to Atlanta, where my parents were living at the time, and they were much older, and they were sick. And I wanted to be a part of their life for the last few years of their life. And so moving back gave me that opportunity to do it. And I left the company about six months later. I like how you said that. You said, uh, we decided to leave the business. We decided to move back to Atlanta. And these are not unilateral decisions. You, you can't decide to do this by yourself when you're earning the kind of money you were and the prospects of tomorrow that you had. So to just talk about even coming together as a spouse. Many of our listeners, have partners, roommates, they're married, family they're trying to raise. What, what were you doing back then during those busy seasons that you were part of that kept the two of you on the same page? I wanted to make the right decision for both of us. And I think in retrospect, had we known how much money that stock was worth or would be worth, I think I, we might have made a different decision and gone to Palo Alto. As it turns out, we ended up with plenty of money. And I don't know what would have happened if I'd gone to San Francisco. I don't know if work would have kept me away from my family in a way that was unhealthy. And maybe our marriage would have turned out differently. I don't know. And so when I think about, gee, how much money, you know, we, we might have left on the table, I, what I, I think about the things I'm certain of. I'm certain that today, 12, 13 years later, uh, I, am, I have a strong marriage, not perfect, but strong. I have a very strong relationship with my two kids who are now 13 and 14, and I played a real part in their childhood. I was around, and that, I think, did at least as much for me as it hopefully did for them. And so when it came time to make that decision, I think if my wife would have said, you know, Paul, you're insane to walk away from this kind of money, we probably would have come to a different decision. But then again, you know, the orientation, maybe the reason I picked her is because we tend to think about things like that on the same level. You're 42 and, when, the, when this is going on, as you make the, the trip from California over to Georgia, you got two little babies now. And I have met friends who retire in their mid sixties who rust out very quickly. Yes. And that's in their sixties or seventies. It, it can happen overnight if there's not a next step plan for them. You've mentioned in the past that the same thing can happen when you're in your forties or earlier. What were some of the I, risks of retiring at any age, but in particular uh, at an age where you feel affluent? There's actual research that's been done that people who retire early tend to die earlier. And I, I think that's, it makes plenty of sense to me because we need work. Work is a vital part of keeping us growing and moving forward. And without growth, there's only one direction. And one of the reasons I started the podcast and one of the reasons I write about what I write about is because I want to normalize the conversation uh, so that people think about and are conscious of the things they're getting from work that are more that are beyond the paycheck. And when I left Facebook, I, I considered work to be about money and benefits. And when I left, I found myself going, why do I feel like a loser? And the reason I felt that way was because even though I had more money than I ever 
thought I'd have. I was like, I don't feel productive. I'm lonely. And I don't know where I'm going. And the reason I had those things was because work was providing all those things for me. And I wasn't thinking about it. Some of the best friends I have in my life and the people I've already mentioned on this, on the, in this interview are people I worked with. You know, you don't love everybody at the office, but some of the strongest relationships you have in your life are work-based relationships. And now, and I was enormously fortunate to work at good places like launch Yahoo and Facebook. But I mean, solid, solid people give you, you know, think about Maslow's hierarchy. The first two are about food, shelter, safety, physiological help. The next one is about belongingness. Where do you fit in the world? And the next one is about self-esteem and about the good feelings that you get when you're working toward a goal. And what's at the top? Self-actualization. Well, you ain't going to get to self-actualization sitting by yourself in your pool room in your big house. That's not how it works. It works when you're out there trying to do stuff to grow, to serve other people, even if it's serving other people in a business environment. That's what you get from work. And I didn't know that until I found myself one morning I came home from driving carpool and I was happy to be able to do it. But then I came home and opened my email and was like, you've got no messages. And it's like, oh, that's a metaphor for like, nobody's looking for you. Nobody needs you. And if you check out, that's where you will eventually end up until you pick another path to get after. So just spending another minute there for the folks listening right now who just checked their email and there were no emails there. And then they looked at the phone and there were no messages waiting for them. If you're not 42 and able to pivot into a new exciting career, we'll talk about that next. What's the encouragement for those of us who may have already made that decision and now we're looking for meaning and purpose and messages where we can invest ourselves? I said to my friend, my former business coach, and he's now just a very wise friend. His name is Al Bott. B-H-A-T-T, and Al Pishbot. I said to him, Al, I'm not finding the social scene. I'm not finding the environments that I thought I'd find when I moved back home. And he said, Paul, you do not find, you create. And so if you're sitting there waiting for opportunity to find you, you're going to get the results that you might expect. But if you say, I want to have this kind of an environment, I want to have this kind of an experience and you move forward and you put yourself out there to try to say, this is what I stand for. I want to find fellow travelers. You will create opportunity for yourself. And I just remember my uncle Fred had these great parties on Memorial Day and 4th of July and Labor Day. And he'd cook out, you know, just some massive number of steaks and hot dogs and burgers and kegs of beer and all this kind of stuff. And I just remember, man, those parties, Uncle Fred, all the family was there. It's like, if you want that, go be Uncle Fred. You got a house, you got a grill, have people over. And I think especially through quarantine, you realize like those are the kinds of experiences that really bring joy to your life. Even if you're not thinking about it in that moment, you're like, oh, those are the memories. Those are the memories. So be Uncle Fred, have a party. And in your personal life, things started to change for me when I said, okay, what do I stand for? What do I, who am I? And I'm like, I'm the guy that lives at the, at the intersection of business and comedy. And as I started meeting people and talking to them and having coffee and whatever, I'd say that I'm the guy that stands for business and comedy. And then one day I had, I had coffee with somebody and somebody goes, you need to meet my buddy, Kevin Dwyer. He's the mortgage banker that does comedy. He's, he's like you. So I meet Kevin and Kevin's like, you need to meet Marshall Childs, the guy that runs the laughing skull lounge, the comedy club here in Midtown. We're working on these business and comedy. We're, we're trying to figure this space out too. And when you start to declare what you care about, you're going to find fellow travelers. They're out there. They might not find you, but you'll find each other if you're if you're intentional about who you want to be and where you want to go. Um, but it takes some effort and it takes, it's a little, you know, sometimes it's a little scary to put yourself out there like that, especially when you don't know the answer. And especially when you're, when you're still judging yourself, I'm still thinking about how will other, how will the people that work at Facebook think about it if I try this new thing? Or if I start to say, I'm the guy that does business and comedy. And soon thereafter, you go, wait a minute, my mindset is expired. I'm using a mindset that is no longer relevant to who I am or what I want to achieve. It is not about how big my paycheck is or what my title is. It's about trying to live authentically in accordance with the things that I believe in. Man, we, we could spend a whole episode, obviously, on on 
business and finance and economics. We're just going to spend one more question on it. You've, you've talked yeah. quite a bit in the past and written about it on the declining marginal return of stuff. <laughs> it's a cool way yeah. to view it. And I hope all the folks getting ready to go out to uh, Target hear what you're about to say. And I love Target. Uh, my family's probably there right now, walking right behind the cart with their mom. But They went in for deodorant and came oh, out man, with always. $400 worth of stuff. Talk about that for a little bit, because many of us are pulling the car up into that lot right now and into that lot all over the place, looking for the stuff, looking for joy within it. Well, there's two different ways to look at this. One is the Marie Kondo approach, which is we generally, especially as Americans, we just have, and I'm looking around my extraordinarily cluttered office that I am going to clean out next week. And it's on my calendar. Our brains are happier in, in spaces that are uncluttered. We just have this tendency to accumulate, accumulate, and accumulate. And that doesn't make us happy. What I'm talking about in the declining marginal returns of stuff, my, my goal is to have people understand that you don't need the most expensive car in the world, for example. The most important car purchase, the most emotionally impactful car purchase I've ever made, and I say this as a guy who's very grateful to drive Mercedes and Audis and things like that for the last 20 years, but the best car purchase I ever made was a 1994 Saturn SL2. I bought it to replace, and I was living in Memphis at the time, and as you know, if you live on the river, Summers are very uncomfortably humid and hot. And I didn't have air conditioning in my car driving around when I was 24 years old. The car would break down and I'd, I'd have a $800 bill from a mechanic who I couldn't afford to pay. So I'd put it on my credit card and I'd run the bill up. And it was just, this car was an agent of chaos in my life. And I was stressed every morning when I went out to turn the key because we had keys back then, whether it was going to start or not. And I just, it was just, I, it, it filled me with dread and angst. And when I finally got a small promotion at work, which, which was a big in percentage terms back then, and I could afford to go buy a new Saturn SL2 and a no-haggle transaction, I brought home this car that started when I turned the key, that had air conditioning, that drove relatively smoothly, and that wasn't sexy, but it was reliable. And it brought a sense of peace to my life in a way that no other luxury car purchase ever came close to providing for me. And so when you think about where money helps solve our problems and really brings us joy in life, it's really at the lower end when you can replace chaos with reliability. And then you can then ask a girl out on a date because you won't be embarrassed if you know you don't have air conditioning in your car and she's sweating through her Counting Crows t-shirt. Like it's not about a Mercedes, man. It's about having an autonomous control of your life where you don't have to worry about chaos where you have, you know, it's not about having $50 million. It's about having 5,000 in your bank. So if you do get that, that car breaks down, you can pay in cash and you don't have to rob your future self by putting it on a credit card. And like, those are the things I, I, I wish I could teach my younger self and the younger generation that like, look, you really, you, you don't need the bling. You want the, you want stability. You want to build a solid foundation for yourself. And that's how you, you put yourself on your own path. One of your values, it's a core value in your life is to tell the truth. Tell the truth. I try. How, how does comedy help you tell the truth? Well, when you're standing on a stage in a comedy club, you can say anything you want. Anything. Now, there's certainly a lot of political language protocols recently that uh, a lot of people are talking about, I can't say this or I can't say that in a comedy club. I think those are kind of helpful, actually, in a way where if you can't say it without saying certain words, you probably should find a better way to say it, you know? And so I also find that mentioning certain politicians' name on stage is, is just going to split the crowd and, and both sides are going to stop listening. And if the crowd's not listening... Uh, you're you're not going to be effective in telling any jokes, and so my 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 material is not really political, and I'm just trying to tell my story. I'm trying to get people to see the absurdity of life through my journey, through through the chaos that goes on in my head, and the tricks my brain plays on me. Because all our brains play similar tricks on each other. No matter how accomplished people are, they're still looking in the mirror, going like, "Oh, I'm still that insecure kid." And the voices from seventh grade are still playing on playback in your brain. 
And it's how do we break out of that? Or how do we see the absurdity of it? And if you can do that in a way that resonates with other people, then you've accomplished your goals up there. And that's kind of what I mean by telling the truth. The true privilege of being a comedian is being able to be on that stage and say things that if you stood up at work, you'd get fired for saying. And that's why you make that trade-off is because it's really, really fun and it's exhilarating to be able to say those things. Now, I'm not just saying you should get up and scream things that you can't say at work that you get fired for. If you can do it in a way that is clever and thought-provoking and laugh-provoking and life-affirming for the most part, you're, you will be successful and you will grow and you'll be invited back. So speaking, I think if you do it well, also pulls through quite a bit of comedy. And sometimes Absolutely. as a speaker, that's my primary job these days, is the audience just is with me. They, they go on the up and the down. They go on that ride of the lifetime with me, and it's awesome. Then there are other times where it is stiff out there. and You got to check again and again to make sure the microphone <laughs> is on. When you're in a club of 100 or 300 or 5 or 1,000, and it's just not working or worse, because I would imagine as a comedian, sometimes it even gets hostile. How do you respond? Not just internally, but externally. I, I have to say that I, I probably play it too safe. And so I don't find myself in situations where it's just not working that much. I mean, there's certainly spaces where I've bombed. But if you play it safe, you don't bomb as much. But if you don't bomb, you don't grow as much either. That's right. And so... I should be putting myself in, and, and for a comic, taking chances means doing new material and new material that hasn't been proved. You have to do new material if you're ever going to grow your act. And so I should be doing new mat material more. In those times when it does get kind of ugly and sticky, I think the thing to do is try to acknowledge it and just say, wow, I really blew that, or I'm not connecting on this level, or say what is true in that moment, and that will offer you a path to get through. Um, or just, you know, say your clothes are really fast and get the hell off stage. That's the, that's another option. So both work. you tell me how, the smaller audiences for com comedy are harder than bigger audience. Bigger audiences you know are what? easy I Four people, that... four people, you know, who, who, who are a little drunk, you know, and not really computing your words. That's way harder than 2000 at eight o'clock at night. I think it's groupthink, And when you're with 2000 we can laugh, we can sing. I mean, if you had four, you would never sing with just three other people, but we'll all sing with you too and think we have a great voice. So I think there's safety in numbers for the audience and it allows them to laugh more and cry more and feel more sometimes when they feel like there's others around them doing that. Yeah. And if you can see the timepiece on the lady to your left and the watch of the guy on your right, it's not safe for some of our audience members. So sometimes the bigger breeds uh, safety for them. That, you know, that's a funny thing. If I, I would, I, that would be interesting to do to say, okay, if, if you're, if there's six people in the audience and you're dying and just look at them and go, Hey, let's all sing a song together. What do you want to just to say that like, that would be like, that would kind of knock them out of their headspace. And then they'd be like, what, okay, what, sing a song, like, and somehow try to bring them to, to, together to do something together. Like it, it could reset the whole thing. Or, let me know how it goes. Next again. time you bomb, film <laughs> your bomb episode and just send it to me. Let, let me enjoy right. what happens next. Right, right. So uh, years ago, I read a book called Waiting for Godot. Ultimately, it's two people who are waiting for Godot. And then they recognize Godot's not coming. And they are actually in purgatory or hell. And this is the way their entire eternity is going to go out, just the two of them. So I'm, I'm curious, if you had to spend a lot of time in a room with only one comedian, who's the one individual you would choose? Uh, well... I've never met Steve Martin, but, you know, he's kind of, to me, the John Lennon of comedy. But I will tell you that just as we were discussing before we came on, the, the best part of podcasting is is this connection is, hey, I get to talk to John O'Leary. I get to meet John O'Leary. Now I know you. And hopefully you'll come on my podcast and be able to share your story with my listeners. And I've met so many, so many incredible people. And the reward for doing comedy is one, getting to say, I'm a comedian. I get to do this. I'm part of a fraternity of men and women who do comedy, fraternity sorority. I'm not sure what you call that. And sometimes because you're in those environments, you get to hang out with your heroes. And so I, I hosted for Norm MacDonald when I was out in the improvs in Orange County, 
I probably hosted for him three or four weekends, which means three nights per weekend. I'm sitting in the green room just chatting about life and music and math and comedy with Nor and Saturday Night Live with Norm with, with Norm McDonald. And it was I'll never forget it. And he's of course he's dead now, but like that was everything. One time I went to the Las Vegas, the HBO Comedy Festival was in Las Vegas, and I walked through the room and I bumped into Dave Attell, who is a great New York comedian, who legendary New York guy. And uh, he was like, hey, Paul, how are you? And I'm like, he, no, Dave Attell knows my name. It's that being able to hang out with people who, even though you're not at their level, you've demonstrated your commitment to be a fellow traveler, and, and that's the reward. And so my answer will be Norm MacDonald for this question. So I, I over-prepare. It's one of my many weaknesses. I over-prepare for these episodes. I had five pages of questions. Oh my gosh, that's, that's, that is that is overkill. quotes to quote back to you and say, man, what do you mean when you say this? What do you okay. mean when you say that? Uh-oh. Uh, but we've, we're near speaking the of, of Speaking topic. of purgatory. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. I've, I've, I'm pounding coffee over here just to endure this conversation you and I are having. <laughs> but the the one quote that I... I love because I think it works for comedy and it works for your kids. It works for my four kids. And we need to hear the reminder loud and clear for society right now is this. You can't wait for the outside world to love you and to applaud you. You just got to keep working on yourself and striving to get better. That's from you. Tell me in your own words now, what you mean by that? The competition is in the mirror. And I don't mean competition. I mean the challenge. I mean, you just got to continue to work towards being the best version of yourself and and all this comparison and this is another thing when you start reading about psychology and money is that comparison is the thing that holds us back and that you know if we sit there and think about our next door neighbor or the comedians that are competing against us or the guy at work who's who got the promotion and you didn't you will hold yourself back forever and even when you become successful you won't be happy it's it's really about choosing to do your very best to work hard to get better because that is what keeps you moving up Maslow's hierarchy. And when I wake up every morning, I'm conscious of how lucky I am with everything that I have in my life and that I get the opportunity to, to do this on a daily basis. And so when I wake up, I'm like, I'm not sure what's on the other side of that computer, what I'm going to write, what jokes I'm going to write, what opportunities I'm going to get, but it's going to be an interesting day. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. We wrap up all of our interesting conversations around here, Paul, with seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. And the first one is, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Oh, man. I clearly did not do enough homework for this. I'll tell you the best book I've read in the last five years, and that's Red Notice by Bill Browder. It's the story of a guy who started a hedge fund in Moscow in the early, late 90s as Moscow is opening up to private investment and then how he built it to $4 billion and eventually ran afoul of uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, the book is absolutely, it's, it's a gripping, gripping read. Some of the most impactful books I've, I've read recently are some of the stoic stuff that uh, Ryan Holiday um, has, have, has written. And it's, and it's not about Ryan Holiday, as he would say. It's about the underlying philosophy of stoicism that I think is the most practical way for all of us to live, to get out of our own ways. Uh, and I've been lucky to have both Bill Browder and Ryan Holiday on the podcast. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a kid growing up in Georgia that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today as a man living in Georgia? Earnestness. Did you strike me as a fairly earnest guy? <laughs> I, I was a little needy probably in uh, grade in high school, but a sincere kid nonetheless. If your home caught fire and your bride, and your French bulldog, and your two kids are out safely and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's that one thing you come racing back outside with? My laptop. Because it's where I write. It's It's where I keep my ideas. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased... Who would you like to be seated next to? My parents. What's the best advice mom and dad ever gave you? Or best advice any comedian, teacher, friend, spouse, book? Best advice you've ever received is? Think before you talk. If you could whisper some wisdom to yourself at age 20, what would you say? You'll get there. Take your time. 
Paul Ollinger, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He did his best. Well, my friend, when you try your best and you don't succeed, I can play that song on the piano. It has been a treat having you on our show. And I want to thank you for sharing part of your experience, part of your knowledge, part of your gains, losses, and wisdom with us on the Live Inspired Podcast. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me, John. My friends, that is Paul Ollinger. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. I loved Paul's call to action of being an Uncle Fred. Do you remember that? Being Uncle Fred. He shared how his Uncle Fred would host these great parties around Memorial Day or the 4th of July with massive numbers of hot dogs and burgers. And he missed those experiences. He wanted to be part of those experiences. He wanted to generate those types of experiences. I heard it being, though, an invitation for you and I, rather than wallowing, to take action to host the party, to bring people together, to create lasting memories. No, it may not require a ton of money or even a lot of time. Just the initiation to bring people together to celebrate something bigger than ourselves, to celebrate this great gift of life. My friends, I love to celebrate life and I find humor in our everyday experiences within it. If you enjoyed hearing from today's comic, that's part of his job title these days, You'll love my conversation with a massive national celebrity. His name is Sebastian Manoskalsko, named the hottest comic in America. Sebastian shared on a Live Inspired podcast how perseverance and hustle have made the key ingredients to attaining the success he once only dreamed of. The challenges that came with it and where he finds inspiration today. I love this podcast. I know you will too. You can check out Sebastian Manoskalsko on Live Inspired Podcast, episode 334, or by letting your fingers do the walking for you right now and cruising over with me to the website called johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. One more time, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired Podcast family. I want to thank you for believing, like I do, that the headwind is real. It is real. The challenges we face can be fierce, and yet the foundation is firm, and the best is yet to come. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.